And he says to them, opens up this passage and says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We saw how he began to immediately unpack, as a reminder, really, the ways in which these men and women once walked, what it meant to live like the Gentiles, how he describes them as being darkened in their understanding. In other words, you're living with a narrow view on life if you do not factor God into your equation, if you don't, do not see him in the picture. By definition, your life is foolish. And it's not to in any way question your intelligence, but rather the fact that to live without God in the frame is flawed from the beginning. He describes this life as alienated from, from God's life, and God's life is his joy. To be cut off from God's joy is to be cut off from the very source from which we derive our own lasting happiness. And he describes the consequences of this as becoming callous in heart, so that your whole being becomes devoted to or given over to your sensual pleasures. And so we understood that when life is lived without God and without the, the experience of Christ's power within us, Sin and the indulgence of your urges and desires become so habitual that you become even numbed to the pleasures that you once enjoyed and you search for ever deepening and darkening experiences of pleasure. And all of you will know what that, that experience has been like at moments in your life where you can become callous, you can become insensitive, your conscience grows insensitive. And Paul smashed in through this description and says, but that is not how you learned Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you have experienced something of his saving power, if you heard his voice and it's resonated in your spirit and you said yes to him, you've crossed the line of faith. You've experienced the infilling of his spirit to renew you and rejuvenate you from the inside. He says, if you, you've learned Christ. And when you learned him, you experienced the truth that, that brought light to your understanding. You encountered life that infused your being with joy. And suddenly your conscience was reawakened because you encountered the purity of Jesus and it has compelled you and attracted you ever since. All these things are true of you if you're a believer in Jesus. Now I want to return to this idea then. Really what this is a provocation towards holiness. And the question that we're, we're wrestling with, which is really in many ways, the ultimate battle of the Christian life is the question of how we can continue to grow and to transform. It's not that we expect all of the transformation of the Christian life to take place at the beginning. And we certainly hope that we don't reach some kind of plateau, but rather that we continue to grow and continue to pursue Christ-likeness as followers of the Master. That's our question that we're going to be wrestling with this evening. But in order to ask it, I, I am making an enormous assumption about you. And the assumption is that you desire that. My reading of the New Testament is that if you're truly a Christ follower, if you have experienced this renovating, rejuvenating, reviving power of God in your life, that there has been a change in you in the deepest parts. And part of that is we can think of negatively, that there is no revulsion in your heart against the things that once attracted you. It's not that you don't sometimes feel the pull. All of us continue to experience temptations till the day we die. But there is a basic revulsion, even a nausea, 
about things that you once thought were tolerable. And you resonate with that cry of Paul when he describes that state of mind in Romans 7 where he says, wretched man that I I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's your feeling about the things that you do or have done that displease God. You want deliverance from it. You, You may be drawn back to it, but fundamentally you find it distasteful and shameful and you want to be rid of those things in your life. Or to frame it positively, there is within you a deeper impulse towards holiness than towards sin. You are chasing God. You are after his heart. You are interested in following the ways of Jesus. You long for holiness because you consider it to be beautiful. And I take these things as assumptions. I'm not saying that we feel these things perfectly. But what I do take as read, is that if you are a follower of Jesus, a change has taken place in your heart in which this is the fundamental basic driver of your spiritual life. There is a revulsion against that which displeases God and a draw towards holiness. And of course, all the imperfection and fluctuations along the way, but that is the fundamental drive and direction of your life. It raises the question for those of you who would not identify with that. You say, you thought of yourself as a Christian to this point, but maybe you, you, you think, no, that's not a description of me at all. And I would want you to, to really pause and reflect and, and examine your own heart and understand whether you really have encountered Jesus at all. When Paul is describing this new life that we enjoy in Jesus, he uses language like this. He says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That's the description of the Christian life. You were once a slave of sin, now you're obedient from the heart towards God. And with all the caveats of the reality that we live with daily temptation, the imperfections of our daily struggles, nevertheless, that must be true of you if you are a follower of Jesus. And the first question you then have to ask yourself is, am I truly a follower of Christ? Has his Holy Spirit come and renovated me from the inside? If that is something that, a question that is coming into doubt for you even in this moment, we would love to help you. We want to talk with you. But ultimately, it means that you must encounter Jesus himself. Now, let me take that as an assumption then. That for the majority of you here this evening, your longing is to grow. Now, even if that's true of you, we also recognize this problem, that speaking and thinking about the life of holiness can be associated with negative emotions. It can feel heavy. It can feel hopeless because you feel that you have failed far too many times to count. And I want to encourage you, brother or sister, there's not a person here who doesn't identify with the frustration, the agony and the wrestling that we all experience day to day because of our inability to follow Jesus the way we want to follow him. The scriptures tell you and encourage you that the mercies of God are new every morning because he's faithful. 
The scriptures also tell us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Jesus, it means you're covered by his protective shield of righteousness and the fact that he atoned for you on the cross. And so friends, when we begin to open up the questions of growth and change and transformation and holiness, this should not be a condemning or heavy or difficult subject for you. In fact, the very opposite is true. This is one of the most hopeful themes that we can engage with as Christians. And the reason why I say that is because we are resting on the promises of God, of his constant work in our life, of the transformation that is bringing us into renewal and, and Christ-likeness from the day you met him until you see him face to face. The Christian life, in other words, in many ways is the opposite of your physical development from the point you reach adulthood. Humans, we, we peak early in life, don't we? When you take in the grand scheme, let's say you live for 80 plus years, if, if you live a full lifespan, your physical peak happens in the first quarter of your existence on earth, doesn't it? That's when you have the lushest hair and you have the smoothest skin and the, 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 the most um, shapely or, or, or strongest body. That's when you are in your physical peak. And the tragic reality is that once you pass that peak, you can never recover it, friends. Your journey is always towards the grave from that point onwards. Try as you might to hold back the forces of time and uh, all the, the decaying effects of living in this body. And that's how the physical body works. And of course, if, if as many, by the way, if, if as many people do these days believe that that is all that there is, there is no life beyond the physical existence, there's no wonder, is it, that given that we peak early and then decline for the next 50, 60 years, there's no wonder that the industries associated with health and youth and the rejuvenation of your body have become the biggest some of the biggest industries in, in the world, right? We're clinging on to something from the past. But the spiritual life, in many ways, is the opposite of that. Here's how um, Paul expresses this in 2 Corinthians and uh, the fourth chapter. I love this verse. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, which is a way of just speaking of your body, our outer self is wasting away. He says, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this is the promise of Scripture. This is why I, I want you to feel profound sense of confidence and hope and joy and optimism. If you're a follower of Jesus, the best is always yet to come. Even if you feel like you're locked in an intractable battle or, or, or um, an, a seemingly unending um, contest with your own flesh and with your own sin, there, is better day, there are better days yet to come. That is the fundamental optimistic, confident assurance that the Christian believes and that drives them, hopefully, towards the future. So, friend, please don't hear what I'm saying. With any sense of heaviness, the Lord is on your side. How, then, are we called to grow into this purity and the holiness that God has called us to? And what Paul says here is three things. Remember, he said to them, but that is not how you learned Christ. Assuming, he says, that you have heard about him, that you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Assuming, in other words, that you're truly a believer in Jesus. 
If we take all of that as an assumption about you, and I understand that not all of you are, but if we assume that you are, he then unfolds these three aspects of growth and holiness that, that flow out of that reality. And here they are. The first is this, that you must put off the old self. Verse 22, this is how you learned Christ, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. What does he mean then when he speaks about the old self? I want to make clear that I do not think that what Paul is talking about here is what the New Testament sometimes describes as the flesh, or some translations say the sinful nature. That is an aspect of the Christian life, the vestiges of sin that still live in you, or that you are constantly called to kill and to put to death and to eradicate from your life. That, I don't think that is what Paul is speaking about here. Rather, when he speaks about the self, and he talks about the old self, or the old life, what he's speaking about is the entirety of your existence before you met Jesus. Your life as it was living in rebellion against God, and not under the lordship of Christ, and not empowered by the Holy Spirit. The old life that is now, in fact, dead and gone, if you're a follower of Christ. The reason why I say that is because it's the same language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 6 when he's describing the old life before you encountered Jesus. And he says things like this. He says, how can we who died to sin, in other words, your old life that was bound to sin is dead now, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And he's saying this is why when we baptize people, we follow the same method that they use in the New Testament, which is to plunge people underwater because it's symbolic of a burial. And then we lift them out of the water in order to symbolize their resurrected life in Jesus. You were buried with him, he says, in baptism. Your old life is dead. And he keeps enforcing this point all the way through that chapter in Romans chapter 6. He says, for example, in verse 6, we know that our old self, or the old man, the old life, it's the exact same language that he's using in Ephesians 4. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He's saying that in a spiritual sense, your old life, the life lived in rebellion to God, was crucified with Jesus when he died on the cross. And because that life which was enslaved to sin is now dead, you are no longer a slave because how can you be a slave after that life has passed away? And this is exactly what he's saying about what it means now. You've learned Christ and part of what you've learned in Christ is to put off the old self, to put off that old life. Now the question then comes like this. If that old life is dead and gone, why do we as Christians continue to experience the pull to backslide, as it were, to pull the corpse out of the ground and dance with it? 
Why is it that the old life seems, seems to still have an impact or effect upon our present existence? And this is what I was trying to explain to you last week. There is this danger of spiritual nostalgia, the pull, the tug that can take place within your heart where you begin to long for that which has passed. I think you could liken the situation to that of a woman who has been in an abusive marriage. Many women tragically live in marriages in which the husband is aggressive, manipulative, controlling, and even violent. And abuse can come in all kinds of forms. And if and when she comes to her senses and realizes that her husband is in no way upholding his covenant vows that he made on the wedding day, then she may divorce him and be freed from his destructive influence in her life. But isn't it often the case in some of the more sad and dysfunctional situations that that man may still have a, an influence upon her even though she is legally free from him? He may still attempt to deceive her, seduce her, lie to her, compel her to return to him. And she may see only the charm and the invitation and the false promises that it'll be different next time. In a sense, that's your situation, Christian. You were married to an abusive partner, your old life. And when you came to meet Jesus, the old life was dead, gone. And now you have a new husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet sometimes you hear the siren voice, the false promises, the beckoning, the invitations, the charm that wants to pull you back. And here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, put off the old life. Keep refusing it. Understand that it's dead, buried, and gone. And do not submit to its false promises and lies. And to enforce the point, as though he hasn't already said enough in this passage about this old way of life, he reminds us of a couple of things. He says that this old life was corrupt through deceitful desires. And let me explain to you what those terms mean. This word corrupt means ruined or broken. When you take in the wider context of this, the verses here, what Paul's speaking about is the image of God in you that was marred and destroyed and ruined when you were living your life without Jesus. We understand that when God made Adam and Eve in the garden, he made them after his own image to be the reflection of his glory on earth so that all that they are, in their physical form, their emotional makeup, their purity, their dominion, their creativity, their intelligence, everything that they are is to mirror God in some way. And of course, when they were plunged into sin, the image of God in humanity was broken practically irreversibly. And that was your old humanity, your old life before you knew Jesus. You could think of it like a father who has two sons. And when these little boys were growing up, everyone said how much they look like the father. And one of them grows up to emulate him and to walk in his footsteps. And whenever anyone meets him, they say, gosh, I had to take a double take. I thought you were your father. And the other decides instead to run away. And his life is plunged into all of the waste and mess 
and slavery to desire that leads him into darker and darker places, his body riddled with diseases, his body afflicted with the addictions and abuses that he's perpetrated against himself to the point where nobody says to him, you are the image of your father. In fact, they question whether he's the same boy. And that's what the Bible says has happened to our humanity. There is on the one hand the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect image of the Father. And then there is the Adamic nature, the image of God ruined and broken and corrupted in us. And to go from the old life to the new is to experience the transformation in which the humanity that was broken under Adam is now reconstituted and rebuilt and reformed under Christ. And Paul's reminding you, don't you remember how broken you were without Jesus? And why were you broken? Because of what he describes here as deceitful desires. In other words, listen, isn't this the case that all temptation operates by a single principle, which is a lie. Satan only has one playbook, and he runs it every single time. And the playbook is to convince you that God is withholding good from you, and the only way in which you can experience true and lasting joy and happiness is to indulge the pleasures through temptation and enter into that life. And it's deceitful because 100% of the time, it doesn't work. This is a reality that's described for us all the way through Scripture. There are many passages we could go to in which we can see the lie being exposed for what it is as the light of truth shines on it and says, don't you understand? This is the same basic lie that the enemy, the snake said to Adam and Eve in the garden. But here it is in Proverbs 7 in the context of sexual sin, describing a young man who catches sight of a prostitute effectively down the street who has adorned herself and bathed herself and made herself look attractive and is trying to seduce him. And it says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Of course, this isn't only true within the context of sexual sin. It's true of all temptation. It always begins with seductive speech and smooth talk. And then it goes on and says this, all at once he follows her. In other words, at some point, he gives up his self-leadership and self-mastery. He believes the lies, and then he's caught in her trap, and he's drawn along. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. He's saying, like dumb animals, entering into the very context of their own destruction, that's how sin seduces you and causes you to suffer and ultimately to die. And Paul's saying this, believer, if you learned Christ, you encountered him in such a way that he freed you from the brokenness of your old life that was captive to those lies and found yourself in ever-darkening spirals 
of sin and temptation and sin and temptation and sin and temptation. So put it off. You'll put it off at conversion, but continue to reject that old way of life and understand that it means to do you no good. And it cannot benefit you or give you the life that it promises. That is the first thing he says. And then he adds a couple more things. The second is this. He says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You learn Christ like this. First, to put off the old life. And secondly, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now this for me is is the heart of, of Christian discipleship, the experience of God's grace in your life every day, that we are undergoing constant renewal. And you consider that from from all perspectives, past and future and present. If you look to the past, you know that experience you have when you flick through an old photo album and see yourself and how the change that's happened gradually each day as you look in the mirror can be massively exaggerated when you see a photo from 5, 10, 15, or 20 years ago. Some of you were babies 20 years ago, I know. I was not. But if I compare the way I look 20 years ago to now, it is horrifying. Many, sometimes people come to our home and they see the photos of us on our wedding day, which was 15 years ago. And they can barely believe that I'm the same person that stood there in that suit on that day. They see C and see she looks exactly the same. Then they look at me and think, what happened? <laughs> change happens gradually in your life. And you can't see that change until you look back at snapshots of the past. And the same is true of you, but exactly in the opposite way when you come to follow Christ. The grace of God, the renewing grace of God has brought you to a point. And you may be feeling somewhat of a depression set in as you think, I'm not changing, I'm not growing, I haven't changed. Ah, but friend, just look back. Look back to what you were. We also look forward and we see what we will be and we know that we're going to be like Jesus. But here's the promise of scriptures. This renewal is taking place within you right now. Now, even as you're listening to me speak this evening, as the Word of God is having its effect upon your soul by the power of the Spirit, if your ears are open and your heart is soft, God is renewing you even in this moment because He is completely and unerringly committed to your transformation and growth. I love how Paul expresses that in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is continual renewal. The fact that the Lord Jesus has made you his special project. And the Lord is not some kind of hobbyist with attention deficit syndrome. Who takes up an interest one day. And then just as quickly loses interest and tries something new. I know some of us are like that. I've been guilty of that myself. That my house is littered with the artifacts of temporary interests. 
I have the sourdough kneading bowls on top of my fridge. I have all the, 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 the um, various ingredient, ingredients to make Japanese food. I intended to become a great Jap cook of Japanese food. I never really tried it more than once, in actual fact. I have m many, many artifacts from, from, from hobbies that were initiated and then not completed. But the Lord Jesus Christ is not like that. He is a master craftsman who once he sets aside upon a project will see it through to completion. And you are the special project of his heart because he loves you. And he's committed to you. And he's made his promise to you. And this is why as, as Christians, if you're ever tempted to fall into a sense of frustration with yourself, and how often we find ourselves caught in the cycles of sin and shame. We feel that we are not making progress, but rather we are regressing in our walk. And perhaps temporarily you are. But if you are in Christ's grip, he will not let you go, and he will not allow what he has begun to languish. But he'll bring it to completion. The Bible describes Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega describes him as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And says that his promise is to complete what he has begun in you. If this is what Paul's speaking of here, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, where does this change happen? And all I want you to understand, friends, is that this is a change that's taking place from the inside out. I think that's what he means by this phrase, the spirit of your minds. He's saying that the change that Jesus brings about in you is not one of mere behavioral adaptation of learning a new way of life. That may be a small part of what it means to be a Christian. But the real change, the change that is at the essence of the gospel and speaks of the promise and the power of God at work in you is one that comes from the inside out. I think that's what he means by this phrase, the spirit of your minds. He means the deepest parts of you. Because ultimately, all that you are and all that you do and all of your daily behavior is driven by your deepest desires. Of course, we are bags of desires and, and those desires are at conflict with each other. But ultimately, the strongest desires are the ones that win. You take an example like your own health. If I asked any of you, all of you, I imagine, would say you would like to be stronger, faster, healthier, better sleep, sleeping, better at eating, more disciplined, and all the rest of it. Right? I don't think any of you would disagree with that. But how many of us sit up late watching TV, eating donuts, or you know, you know, stay, staying up late, getting up, not getting enough sleep, doing all the things that we know, neglecting exercise, all the things that we know are bad for us? So ultimately, whatever desire, aspiration, or longing you have towards better health is counteracted by your deeper desire to pursue immediate gratification. That's the most fundamental driver of your life if you're not actually doing it. Now transpose that across the spiritual life. The only way in which you can grow is if change is happening from the deepest part to the outside, not the other way around. If the Lord is rewiring your very desires, causing you to long for Him. This is what I think Paul is saying about this renewal. The Lord Jesus Christ is changing you from the inside out. And the way in which he changes you is by replacing all of the affections that you have for lesser created things with one overriding affection for Jesus himself. 
It's what Thomas Chalmers described as the expulsive power of a new affection. Maybe you experienced that in your younger years when you, were, you thought you were besotted or infatuated with somebody at school. And then you met someone new. And that person was dead to you, the first one, because the expulsive power of a new affection just shifted all of your attention and desire onto someone new. And marriage is the perpetual pursuit of that someone new. And this is how God changes you, how this renewal happens in the spirit of your minds. The Lord becomes better and sweeter and more attractive and more beautiful to you until he fills your gaze so that the holy person is a worshiper and a worshiper is someone who is growing in holiness. There are many scriptures I could pull on here to to support my point here, but fundamentally the, the message of scripture is that what you behold is what you become. What you worship is what shapes and transforms you. What you gaze upon is what imprints itself upon you. You become like the things that you adore in life. And so the way in which the Lord causes you and causes you to grow and to change and to become like him is that you fall more and more deeply in love with him. In other words, he reveals himself to you and you respond in worship. Is your love for Jesus deepening? Are all those lesser desires fading as one great overriding, compelling desire takes its place? You must be renewed, he says. And this will culminate, of course, with that final moment when we'll see Jesus face to face, as John puts it in one of his letters, that when we see him, we'll become like him because we'll see him as he is. Suddenly, faith will become sight, and the vision of Jesus in all of his glory will utterly obliterate all of the lesser desires that still plague you and pull at you and tempt you in this life. Because when you see him without any obscurity or hindrance to your sight, the transformation will be instant. But the Christian life is the searching and the longing for that. It's us beholding the glory of the Lord, as Paul puts it, and being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Are you beholding Jesus? Are you listening to his voice? Are you responding to him in worship? Are you pursuing him in prayer? Are you gathering with his people in order to worship him with others? As he's filling your affections, as he's filling your heart, that's how he's changing you, friend. Oh, Spirit of God, breathe on us we might see the Son in all of his glory so that all lesser desires will fade away. Do it in us, Lord. Isn't this our prayer? The final thing he says here is that you must put on the new self. Put off the old, be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and then he adds this, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We live in a day and age in which we imagine that we can alter our bodies in order to change the definition of who we are. 
I remember seeing a story about a man who's paid a quarter of a billion dollars to undergo plastic surgery in order to become, he's a, he's a, a white man growing up in South London, in order to become like his idol, a Korean boy band member. And, you know, you read these things and you do despair a little, don't you? But the grace of God's been at work in his life and he's actually become a Christian and now he's seeking to undo all of that, which is wonderful. We live in a day and an age, though, of the plastic person, the plastic individual, in which we think that by bringing about external changes, we can change the definition of who we are. And, of course, this is nonsense. The reality of who you are is, is the reality of what God has made you on the inside of what he's remaking on the inside. And this is, this is the way the gospel works. There was an old you that I'd been explaining to you has died and was buried, but it wasn't replaced with nothing. When you put your faith in Jesus, the seed of a new life, the beginning of a resurrection life was implanted within you. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are a new creation. Now, you still experience the vestiges of that old life as I've been exploring with you, the, the temptations and the lure and the pull of sin and of the flesh. Those things will continue to dog you until you die. But ultimately, a, an irreversible change has taken place in you the minute that you were, were taken hold of by Jesus. You became a new person. You became a new creation. And that is... That is the work that God is doing with you, within you. And what Paul says here, he describes this new life, this new self as being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Remember how he said the old life was that brokenness, that corruption, the broken image of God. Now he's saying that the creative work that God did in Adam and Eve and that was then ruined at the fall is now begun anew in you as you're being formed after the likeness of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is making you like Jesus. That's the gospel. He's changing you from one degree of glory to another. He's making you like his son. This is why, by the way, we take the name Christian, which originally was something of a mocking, disparaging term, but it just means little Christ. And I don't take that as mocking or disparaging because isn't that what all of us long to be? Like Jesus. So here's what it all comes down to, friends, as we think about the daily choice to put off the old life, to be renewed, to put on the new life. It all comes down to this, that each day as you're walking with Jesus, Satan will try to trap you in these old lies that pull you back to the past. Some of those lies are the seductions that tell you, you know, the old life was better And he'll try and, and, and distort your memories and bring about what the psychologists call a kind of recall bias, where you only remember the good and not the bad. And he'll also lie to you and tell you that, you know, you haven't really changed. And so trap you in that sense of failure and the dismal sense of despair that actually becomes self-fulfilling as you find yourself caught in deeper and deeper sin. And these are Satan's techniques and he's been running these techniques ever since the dawn of time. But the gospel that Paul's preaching 
the gospel of newness, of new beginnings, of new life that is yours now in Christ is a gospel that you take by faith every day to put on the new life. Faith isn't just something that you exercise the minute you're saved. It is that. To believe in Jesus, to trust him, and to say, Lord, I trust that you took my sin upon you on the cross, and that when I face you, I will not be condemned because of the things that I have done, because they were defeated by you upon the cross. That is faith, and it's an act of trust that we all place in Jesus, and that is what saves you. But the Christian life is not only about faith at the very beginning, the inception of your life. It's faith every day to believe that this new life that God has given to you is the new you. That this new life is the life that you're now called to live out, to put on the new man, to put on the new life every day. And to understand that God has put his power in you, his resurrection life exists in you, and that you are called now to live out the holiness and purity that is yours in Christ. This is exactly how Paul expresses it elsewhere. In Romans 6, this very memorable verse, he says, You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must think of yourself in a new way. You consider yourself dead to sin. You say, no, sin no longer has a hold on me because that old life is buried, dead, and gone. And I'm now alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm responsive to his Holy Spirit. His life is in me, and I belong to Christ. By the power of God at work in you that is joined with the faith and the response of faith within your own soul, this is how the Lord grows you and enables you to walk with Jesus each day of your life. Friend, I want to encourage you to take heart. If you are not a Christian, it's important that you hear the fundamental offer of the gospel, which is the offer of God's changing power. You will discover in life the limits of your own ability to grow and to change. And you'll find that you encounter frustration day after day. And that there is shame that you can never be rid of and the change of heart that you can never bring about. The gospel is come and follow Jesus and he will do his work in you. If that's something that you want for yourself, If you feel that draw towards Jesus, friend, we would love to talk and to pray with you. But a word to my brothers and sisters who are believers here this evening. Are you being trapped and pulled back into the lies of that old life? Do you feel, as it were, the kind of hand on your shoulder of that corpse pulling you back and and bringing you back into the old things? Understand today that your calling is to put it off, to understand that that's not you anymore, and to walk in the newness of the life that you've received in Jesus, this resurrection life.